Welcome to the PKN Podcast, where we give you the wrap on all things packaging. Welcome, folks, to the PKN Packaging News Podcast, brought to you today by Bonfiglioli, your trusted partner for packaging and processing applications. My name's Grant McCarran, and as ever, I'm joined by Lindy Hewson, Managing Editor and Publisher of PKN Packaging News and the host of this show. G'day, Lindy. Can you please tell us about our topic and our guest for this episode? Well, hi, Grant. Today, we're going to be talking about digital transformation in manufacturing and the concept of Industry 4.0, which, although it has been around for a decade or more, is finally catching the attention of business leaders. And we're starting to see some uptake in Australian manufacturing plants, including their packaging lines. Now, still, there is a lack of clarity around how to implement Industry 4 effectively and indeed why it should be done. So with us in the studio today is Industry 4 evangelist, John Broadbent. He's the director of Realize Potential, and he works with Australian manufacturers to assist them to plan for digital transformation. Now, I met John around uh, 2018, I believe, and at the time we were at the site of the Coca-Cola Amatils Packaging Services Division facility. Coca-Cola Amatil, of course, now Coca-Cola Euro-Pacific Partners. Um, And that was one of the early smart factory examples that we have seen in our country. And John um, spoke to me that day, and I realized this is an expert on the subject. So, John, welcome to the studio. Thank you, Lindy. Good morning, and to you too, Grant. We are going to begin at the basics, John. Can you tell us what is Industry 4.0 and why would a manufacturer be interested in it? So back in 2011, the Germans uh, decided, I guess, looking at what was emerging on the world stage, that we'd finally reached the stage of the fourth industrial revolution. Most people are aware of the first industrial revolution around sort of the 1780s, which was the, you know, the advent of the weaving loom uh, and, and sort of the beginnings of mechanisation. Um, and then in 1870, electricity was sort of the next major era where things changed, and that's sort of known as Industry 2.0. And then Industry 3.0 sort of kicked in around 1969, Neil Armstrong on the moon. And that was the advent of electronics, uh, controllers and various other things that we see in the world today. And so it's interesting for me that, you know, 1780 to sort of 1880 to sort of 1969, it's almost sort of 100 year gaps between the various eras um, or eras of industry. And Industry 4.0 is now much more tight between 1969 and 2011. So it really is the advent of a whole new um, opportunity for manufacturers. And why would they be interested in um, looking at Industry 4.0? Well, as I mentioned, uh, when we had a conversation about this, Lindy, back in 1996, I was given the opportunity to uh, build a factory as part of a factory build team. This one was in Thailand. And luckily for me, I had three months after the factory started up to basically just be on site and support the team and do some training and education, but I was pretty bored. So I said to the guy that I was working for at the time, who was from Australia, can, can I have just have a go at a project, which I'd heard about on the world stage? And that factory had been built along smart factory concepts without realising what a smart factory was in those days. And I saw significant benefits come from that. In those days, the technology to do that was fairly clunky. You know, Windows work groups on the computers, we've come a long way in that 25 years since then. And so now the technology sets uh, that are emerging and the cost of those becoming so much less is really providing almost like a a pregnant environment for manufacturers to take advantage of. 
We've spoken about, we talked about Industry 4 and both you and I using the term smart factory. In simple terms, can you tell the listeners what is a smart factory? So a smart factory is one where integration is in place. And I, I claim that secrets, the secret source of Industry 4.0 is in fact integration itself. And it gives us the opportunity through integration to have systems in a factory environment that normally don't talk to each other. It's very common to go uh, into a factory and see that they'll have, for example, an ERP system. They might have a manufacturing execution system. They might have a SCADA system, a HMI system. They might have some Excel spreadsheets and custom databases, laboratory information management system. They have a whole plethora often of systems that are islands unto themselves. And the information flow between those systems is either manual or doesn't exist at all. Now, what do you see as being the major roadblocks to adoption of Industry 4 technology? So a good friend of mine in Melbourne went to a job recently to have a look at an opportunity and the guy proudly stood back and said, check out the nameplate. And this particular piece of machinery was dated 1922. And it's sad for me that I believe that if we actually did a survey of how much of Australian manufacturing is being made on already fully depreciated kit, it would be in the 80s or 90%. I see organisations sweating assets, and I understand why they need to do that, but they're sweating assets way beyond what the asset life was meant to be. And as a result of that, manufacturing still seems to be sort of the poor cousin. And I see a lot of organisations that have a very bright, what I'd call top end, you know, C-suite, but the manufacturing part of the business that in the end pays everybody's wages is often seen as a necessary evil as part of the business. You know, we don't have VPs of manufacturing in this country like they do in the United States. And rarely do we see COOs sitting at that C-level. Often the COOs sit under a CFO or a CIO or someone further down the food chain. And as a result of that, the Industry 3.0, the closeout, if you like, of Industry 3.0, meant that we had to have computerization in our processes and we also, also had to have connectivity. So computerization meant that we've got modern equipment uh, from which we can mine information. And then to do that, we have to be able, be able to connect it to something. So we need networks and switches and firewalls and Wi-Fi and cybersecurity and all that sort of stuff. And that foundational piece, sort of, the, as I said, the closeout of Industry 3.0 hasn't happened for a lot of businesses. And so they're now sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place. Do we invest a significant amount of money to get our house in order and bring it up to standard in terms of networks, firewalls, switches, cybersecurity, um, or do we do something in parallel? And at least these days, the opportunity is there to do something in parallel while you, you get your, your, your business back into the manufacturing business back into the 21st century. So we're about, um, as you mentioned, we're, we're more than a decade on from the time that it emerged as an actual named concept. Why now is the, the imperative to get cracking with Industry 4? Well, there's really, I think that's why the Germans named it back in 2011. It's really a convergence of three sort of underlying concepts. The first one being um, cyber physical systems. A cyber physical system is any system where a human interacts with the cyber world. For example, an autonomous vehicle is considered to be a cyber physical system, an automatic pilot on a plane. Uh, smart grids, you know, reporting data up to the smart grid every 15 minutes about how much power you're using. Um, another example of the things we see in factories like um, SCADAs and HMIs, human machine interfaces, they're also considered cyber physical systems. So they've been there for a while now, but they've now matured. Coupled with that is the ability to access cloud computing. 
you know, the, the cloud for us as consumers has become so ubiquitous that we almost take it for granted. You know, kids these days, Google Drive, Dropbox, um, OneDrive, you know, whatever your flavour is, but we don't particularly care anymore where our stuff is. We just put it to this strange place we call the cloud and hope that someone else is doing all their backups and taking care of things. And last year I was involved in migrating an on-premise ERP system into a private cloud. And that was a tremendous project. Not only was it a complete success, but it actually gave that organisation now opportunity to expand at will and run, you know, a system up in minutes without having to worry about their data centre or their server room or any of that stuff. So they've now got pretty well unlimited capacity. And the third part or the underpinning foundation of Industry 4, so we've had cyber physical systems, we've had cloud, is what's known as the industrial internet of things, the IIoT. So a thing is anything that we can, you know, get data from. It could be a refrigerator, it could be a washing machine, it could be a car. Um, but in the industrial world, it's all the things that we'd find in a factory, like robotics, cameras, PLC, SCADA systems, machine controllers, and all that sort of stuff. So those three um, concepts, if you like, or technologies have gradually started to mature. And I think the Germans in 2011 saw that we're now at this convergence of those three technologies and together the one plus one plus one equals a lot more than three. Yeah, it equals four. Or <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe ten, you know. I mean, it's, it's a really amazing what you can do these days. Yes, of course. And uh, we spoke a lot about data accumulation there. Yes. The, the point is, of course, um, if you're gathering all this data, it's no use unless you're actually going to do something meaningful with it. Yes. It doesn't mean you have to do it today. And in fact, one of the things I'm doing a bit at the moment in the marketplace is educating manufacturers. And the question I would ask them is this, why are you pouring data down the drain? It may be that you're not ready for machine learning or artificial intelligence as that starts to mature, but in two or three years time, you might be. And wouldn't it be wonderful in three years time when you decide to do some machine learning on process? that you had already three years' worth of data in your repository that you could mine and learn from, rather than in three years' time turning it on and have to wait another two or three years for that data set to accumulate. And what I'm realising these days is that the cost to collect, compress, uh, ingest and store data into unstructured data lakes is becoming cheaper and cheaper you know, by the month. Um, for example, Amazon Web Services, AWS, which I have some experience with, you can store gigabytes of data for cents per month. But if you put that data into what's called glacial storage, that means you're putting the data into a place that you can't really readily get access to. It's not real-time access. It can take 24 to 48 hours for you to get the data back. But if you're, if you're storing it into glacial storage, the cost is cents per terabyte per month. So for you know, a few hundred dollars, you could basically store an entire year's worth of factory data in an unstructured data lake for later use. For a rainy day. Okay, so rather than ditching it down the drain, as you said, you put it in the lake and you let the lake freeze, <laughs> yep. become the glacier, and there you have it. Okay, and then you can unfreeze it when you need it. That sounds like um, a, a lot of sense to me. So we've seen that there have been some factories implementing it. Do we know yet if there are any results that have been achieved that are measurable, or is it still too early to tell? The World Economic Forum, and I only found this out last year, so it was sort of a best-kept secret for me, but the World Economic Forum started a group a while ago. I'm not sure of the original inception date, but it's called the Global Lighthouse Network or the GLN. 
And each year, um, businesses are invited, manufacturing businesses are invited into the Global Lighthouse Network. And there are brands in there that we know quite well, Audi, Procter uh, & Gamble, uh, Johnson & Johnson, Siemens, and specific factories in the Global Lighthouse Network or have been invited into the Global Lighthouse Network because they've achieved a certain level of results and maturity. And there's a fantastic McKinsey blog. Uh, it's called, if, if you search up McKinsey and the Great Manufacturing Reset, it's a fascinating article, very easy to read, very well written, very short. But there's a particular chart in there that shows the improvement across a whole range of metrics. I think there's about 13 manufacturing-specific metrics like OEE, like um, sustainability in terms of power usage and that sort of stuff, you know, time to market, agility of the business. And what's remarkable about this little chart is it shows that the chart firstly starts at zero, which means no one went backwards, but it goes up to 200%. I mean, one lucky organisation in the GLN, through implementing these uh, concepts, uh, achieved a 200% output in productivity. Um, you look at energy savings and it's somewhere between, you know, 30 and 60% is the sort of the average value that these organisations are finding. So these are audited businesses started off with um, a known baseline where they were measured and benchmarked, and then this is the improvement that they've had over the years. Uh, Deloitte's have also done this as well, and they showed that those that have adapted to and adopted Industry 4.0 have had like a 10% uplift in productivity. I think it was 11% in utilisation. I think it was 12% in, in, in efficiency. This is not chump change. These are significant numbers that when added to the bottom line immediately turn out in the bottom line profit of the business because every dollar we save in manufacturing is a dollar we add to our profit. You're listening to the PKN Podcast by Yaffa Media. We'll be right back after this. In a world filled with change, you can count on Bonfiglioli. Bonfiglioli's relentless commitment to excellence, innovation and the sustainability of your business ensure that you'll always be ahead of the curve. Decades of experience in developing specialised solutions for solid and liquid packaging and processing applications make Bonfiglioli your trusted partner. You can count on local support, a large stockholding, customised solutions and the best service every time. Bonfiglioli. We engineer dreams. And now, let's get back to the discussion on the PKN podcast. Well, in Australia itself, and I know of several examples, and, and I'm sure you do too, of companies that have begun this the journey and have started to implement them. Just yesterday, I was talking to McCormick about an industry for implementation at their aeroplane jelly food packaging line. Three lines are now up and running thanks to some work that they've been doing with Bosch, um, Bosch Manufacturing in Australia. And uh, I know that Foodmac was involved with an industry for implementation for Dulux, and that was several years ago, and that was one of the world first industry 4.0 plants as well. You yourself have been involved with Coca-Cola Amatul, that is Coca-Cola Euro-Pacific Partners, with Beacon Johnson, with their new food facility in New South Wales. And I'm sure that there are a number of others, but the fact that we can probably count them on two hands is, is somewhat of a concern. Have you seen much of an uptake of Industry 4 platforms? No. And, and it's the reason I started this in early 2018, um, found a potential as a business and wanted to get out in front of camera or front of microphone to uh, educate the marketplace around because I was, I was really confused myself around 2016, 2017. Here I was with a business partnership helping 
as a solution architect and integration lead help build these places. As you mentioned, Coca-Cola back in November 2011, just as Industry 4 was emerging. But I saw the benefit that business had because it's now a decade on. It's been the most reliable and scalable business and, you know, almost a lights out factory. And so t- 10 years of history of that place running like a Swiss watch for me showed me that those principles when done properly can have an, an incredible result. And for me, it's, if you look at the social construct called the law of diffusion of innovation, it's how an idea travels through society over time. And they've shown statistically that at the bull nose of adoption, we have what are called the innovators. And it's about two and a half percent of any population. So if it's about you know phones, they're the people that'll wait at the Apple store at three o'clock in the morning for the next phone. Um, coming in close behind them are the early adopters, and they're about thirteen and a half percent of the population. So those two combined form sixteen percent of the bell curve at the front end. And when we reach that sixteen percentage points, is where we then have what's called the tipping point, and then the, the early majority come in, the, the late majority, and finally the laggards if they haven't gone out of business by then. And I'm not seeing even that innovation front end being taken up yet. I couldn't name five businesses in 200 yet that have done this. So on the one hand, that's the bad news because compared to the rest of the world, we're being left behind. And in fact, in the McKinsey blog article, The Great Manufacturing Reset, they specifically say that the research is showing that the gap between the four IR, fourth industrial revolution front runners, and rest of the world is widening. So my appeal to manufacturers is the front of that bull nose is travelling through time. If you're not starting, you're standing still. And the longer you wait, the bigger the gap becomes. And if you don't do it, your competitors will, and you will then lose the competitive advantage. So we're talking here to an audience of packaging professionals. And so my question to you then is, what impact do you see having it on the packaging industry per se? So I see it um, in packaging machinery where information is being brought back from from packaging equipment such as uh, pack counts, uh, check weighs where we're actually getting real-time pack weights. We're able to do with dashboarding real-time giveaway information and show trends and graphs and statistical analysis of is our process actually under control. Um, if you, uh, you, you may remember one of the presentations, Lindy, I talked about the four stages of Industry 4 maturity The first one is the seeing piece. So we need to be able to see what's going on in our process. And that means we need the industry three foundational steps of connectivity and computerization. Then we connect to those systems, we pull the data out and we can now see what's going on. I liken it to sitting in your car and there's a speedo and it shows you doing 60 kilometers an hour. The next part of the maturity uh, step is the understanding piece. So we need to then give that information context For example, you're doing 60 kilometres an hour in your car, but you've just gone through a 40 zone. So you now know in context that you're speeding. Once we're able to do that, we can then go to the third phase of maturity, which is the predictability. And that is based on what we now know, we can see that our process, for example, is about to go out of control. And so we need to make an adjustment to do that. As we get more confident and competent in in the tool sets, we then get to the fourth stage of maturity, which is the optimization piece. So, for example, you have a filling machine, you are collecting pack weights from a check weigher, and you're monitoring those and plotting those using proper statistical process control, and you're seeing those pack weights gradually start on the sampling regime that you're using, gradually start to increase. So, you're, you're approaching an overweight situation or what's called an upper control limit. 
Firstly, without being able to see it, you wouldn't know until you got to the end of the line and you had an issue and you've lost yield or you're filling, overfilling what you're doing. Uh, secondly, with no context, you wouldn't understand it. But if you put this up into an SPC chart and you're watching this in real time and you see you've now had five values heading north to the upper control limit, you can actually then get the system to optimise that and predict what's going to happen that you're going to make non-saleable product. But you can actually get it to feed back up the line and go, hey, drop the weight a little bit, 1%, 2%, whatever it is, and correct the process before the out-of-spec condition occurs. That's the final stage of maturity, which is the optimization piece. Gosh, well, I'm, I'm absolutely hanging on every word here. What, you, what you're saying is just so impactful. Now, recently you did a blog um, or, a, or just a rant, let's call it on LinkedIn, and you made the very clear and strong point that Industry 4 is about leverage. It's about using available, low-cost or already existing technologies to do more with less. I think that's quite crucial to the Australian manufacturing scenario where there are existing technologies where there may not be the finance to upgrade everything all at once. And you have made the point repeatedly today, but let's just make it absolutely clear now that you don't have to do it all in one go. You can commit to transformation and to how you plan to do business in the future, but there are steps that can be taken now to get you on the journey. Yes. And the challenge that, that prompted me to do one of the video blogs which actually was probably the best received and, and led to quite a few webinars and podcasts as a result. It's called It Ain't About the Platform. I think it was episode six in the series. It was only about six minutes long, but I was really troubled and I had something you know gnawing at me because I'm aware that some of the platform vendors, as I would call them, whether it's PTC, AWS, Google, Microsoft, IoT, IBM, whatever, that they were struggling with adoption. I was seeing the sales process really struggling because manufacturers were going, why do I need a platform? And this sat with me for months. <laughs> and then as you know, you process your thinking. And then eventually I realized, well, the question as to what platform should I choose, if at all, is really way down the decision tree. And the first question that I'd suggest that any manufacturer needs to ask themselves before embarking on any digital transformation journey is simply this. Do you want to be best in class? If the answer is no, <laughs> all over. Um, if the answer is yes, the next question is, well, do you know what best in class actually looks like? And I'm aware of quite a few manufacturers that I would call old school. They have what, again, I affectionately refer to as the grey-haired ceiling, which is my generation and slightly younger sitting usually in that sort of C-suite or engineering management role, not prepared to take risk on some of these emerging systems. So the digital natives, the guys, you know, born 1990 and later that are absolutely champing at the bit to get in and have a go at some of these systems of machine learning and AI and all this sort of stuff are actually being held back by the grey-haired ceiling going, ah, oh, we're too risk-averse and I'm coasting to retirement and I don't particularly care anyway. So best in class, if you want to be best in class, you have to know what best in class looks like. And if you've been in the one business for 25 years, chances are you don't know what best in class looks like until you've been around. And so do you want to be best in class? Do you know what best in class looks like? And then the third question is, do you have a leadership that's committed to digital transformation? Because the number of times I've seen organisations where the people from the factory floor have come up with a great idea, tried to get funding, um, but just can't get past first base, or they do a little project and it doesn't really have the success that they expected, 
because they're approaching it as a proof of concept rather than a proof of value. And I take companies to task around the proof of concept approach because proof of concept means can we do what we think we can do technically? Well, can we connect to a data source, take data and push it up into the cloud and store it somewhere and do a, a report on it? Christ, we've been doing that for <laughs> you know, decades. Yes, we can. We don't need proof of concepts anymore. We need proof of value. If I do this and I monitor my power in real time in my process, can I save money? Am I able to do more with less? Will it affect my bottom line in a positive way? That's where the proof of value needs to be shown. So if the leadership isn't committed to digital transformation, this bottom-up approach just never gets legs because you don't have the commitment and the buy-in from the top. And, and as you say, we don't have to do it all at once. However, we do have to commit to the journey and then we can start step-by-step. Step. Whether it takes 12 months, whether it takes 10 years, who cares? Well, John, I could go on talking about this for hours, um, but we can't. And um, I, I would just like you to say, what is your what is the most important message that you can give to manufacturers out there who are still sitting on the fence and not really committing to this transformation? Uh, if not now, when? And if not, you who? <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> what are you waiting for? That's the question I ask these manufacturers is what are you waiting for? I mean, I was talking to an MD of a fairly well-known brand of food in a franchise, owns a franchise operation, big franchise, well-known. And I, I made some comment about, uh, connected with him on LinkedIn and made some comment about Industry 4.0. And his comment was, quote, unquote, never heard of it, sounds gimmicky. Well, that uh, is indeed concerning. And that tells us that there's a massive gap in education around Industry 4 out there. And you are doing your bit to help that. You mentioned um, that you have done this video series, many of which I've watched, and they are very, very good. Can you just tell the audience where they can go to if they wanted to watch some of your videos and, and read some of your content? So I specifically created a LinkedIn business page under the name Realize Potential and kept everything else out of there other than the videos. So every video, I think is 15 episodes now, um, are in the Realize Potential LinkedIn business page. And obviously you can connect to me on, on LinkedIn under, under my name, John Broadbent. And, uh, yeah, look forward to reaching out to people if they want some information. I do have uh, a freely available a smart factory equipment purchasing checklist uh, that has served some companies really, really well. So just reach out to me on LinkedIn and ask for the checklist and I'll send it to you. The idea of the checklist is it's a, a series of questions that you need to ask a machine supplier to make sure that the kit you're buying is not going to build you into a cul-de-sac and that you can get information out of it because you want that asset to last you for quite a number of years and you do not want to buy a cul-de-sac from which you cannot mine information. Well, John, fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us. We've learned a lot and I'm sure that our audience has too. Thanks for the opportunity and I really appreciate uh, PKM doing this. Thank you. Well, thank you, John, and thank you, Lindy. That was a great uh, discussion, some amazing technology to consider and the benefits it can apply. And, of course, thank you to our audience for joining us on this episode, which has been brought to you today by Bonfiglioli, your trusted partner for packaging and processing applications. We'll be back again in the not-too-distant future with another informative episode, but until then, have a great day. You've been listening to the PKN Podcast. Produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of PKN Packaging News, owned and published by Yaffa Media. The views of the people featured on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of PKN Packaging News, Yaffa Media or the guest's employer. 
The contents are copyright by Yaffa Media. If you wish to use any of this podcast audio, please contact us via the website or send an email to editor at packagingnews.com.au. You can subscribe to this podcast via your preferred platform and read all the latest news on Australia's packaging industry at packagingnews.com.au. You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast.